You're listening to the Caroline Springs Anglican Podcast. Albert told you we're in the book of Exodus. We're actually in week five of what we expect will be a 22-week series. It'll take us all the way up to Advent. And um, if you've been around, you know that we've been trying to frame the book of Exodus in the big story of the Bible. And uh, it's super important that we understand the whole story if we're going to understand uh, Exodus. We, we need to understand the whole sweep of the biblical narrative in order to understand the book of Exodus. And um, I'll tell you a story about why this is, right? Back in 2001, I went with my older brother, Benjamin. Uh, I went with him to the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, the first movie of what was a trilogy of movies, The Lord of the Rings. Now, here's the thing. My brother had never read the book and knew nothing about it and, and didn't want to know anything about it. Right? He wanted that movie experience where you go along, you don't know what's going to happen. And, and, and I had read the book at least five times, all three books, right? Cover to cover, a little bit obsessed about it. But here's what happened. At the end of the movie, we'd sat through this epic first installment in a trilogy, The Fellowship of the Ring, and we got to the end and my brother just looked at me and said, that sucked. Like, what the, what, that movie didn't make any sense. There was no ending. And it turned out, after some confusion and me feeling offended that he didn't like the movie, that, I, that he didn't know it was a trilogy. He just thought he was going to see a movie that had a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so the whole time, he was completely confused, and by the end, completely unsatisfied, right? And here's the point. If we're going to understand the book of Exodus, we need to read it back through the whole story. We need to know, if we're going to understand the whole point of the book, we need to know that God wins in the end, that God sends his son Jesus into the world to be sacrificed for sin, and that people, all people throughout the world, can have life eternal life in his name. So we've tried to frame it up in terms of what we see as the big, the big plot line of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So you get the first two parts in the first three chapters of the Bible. God creates, and then his creation rebels against him. You have the fall. And then from that point, really until Jesus comes along, all through that Old Testament narrative and poetry and Um, apocalypse and all that stuff, it's all about how God is going to redeem his people, how he's going to undo what was broken in the beginning. And he tells us from the beginning, Genesis 3 verse 15, that he is going to bring someone along, it's going to be a person, it's going to be in the the line of of humanity which he has created, and this person is going to crush the head of the serpent, he's going to crush Satan's head, he's going to overcome chaos and brokenness and sin in the world. So all through from Genesis 3, like the second page in the Bible, until Jesus turns up, you're asking the question as you read through, when, when's this Redeemer going to come? When's he going to arrive? And we see, looking back, having read the whole story, that that Redeemer is Jesus. Jesus is the one who secures the redemption of his people. Redemption means to be bought out of slavery. So by Jesus' blood, we're brought out of slavery to sin and brokenness and chaos and we're given new life. And Exodus is like a little foreshadowing of that. The whole book of Exodus is like a little microcosm of that big story of redemption. So where God's people in the the cosmic redemption of Jesus on the cross, God's people are bought by the blood of a perfect lamb, that's Jesus, 
out of slavery to sin. The, the people of Israel in Exodus are bought by the blood of a perfect lamb in the Passover out of slavery to Egypt. So you see how the, in order to understand Exodus, you have to understand the big story of the Bible. And so we've tried, we've made an effort over the last few weeks to be able to put this story in that context. Speaking of context, um, we've come now this morning to Exodus chapter 3, and in verse 1, we're given the context for the passage we're going to look at. So I encourage you to grab a Bible, there should be one near you, go to Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, all the text will be on the screen as well, but I, just, I think it's good to have pages in front of you, okay? And, and if you don't own a Bible, take that one with, us, with you today, all right? That's our, that's our gift to you. And we are running short on Bibles. So if you want to buy some, we don't have any money in the bank. You have more than us. Feel free to buy us some, all right? You can, you can, you can let us know you'd like to do that. We love to give away Bibles. So Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, gives us the context. It says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So that's the context, right? We saw this last week. He came out of Egypt at 40 years old. He, he met Raul, whose name, it turns out, is also Jethro. He's got that weird Bible thing where he has two different names and they don't really tell you that. Uh, but, but anyway, he met Raul. Raul gave him his daughter. Uh, they get married. And so now for 40 years now, he has been tending to Jethro's flocks. Uh, and, um, and we know it's been 40 years because Stephen, right, who is a disciple of Jesus in Acts chapter 7, tells us it was 40 years after he came to Midian, that he uh, has this encounter in chapter 3. So 40 plus 40, he's now 80 years old, and he's just chilling. He's, just, he's happy being a shepherd. He, he, he has moved beyond being a prince of Egypt and living the, you know, the, the, the Cribs lifestyle. He had that kind of MTV Cribs thing happening back when he was younger. Now he's, he's a shepherd. He's living in the wilderness, and he's happy there. He's been 40 years there now, and all of that is about to change. So verse 2 to 3, this is what we do, by the way. We just read a little bit, chat a little bit, and then read a little bit more, all right? So verse 2 to 3, there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight why the bush does not burn up. So even if you're here this morning and you've got no background in church and you're not regularly going to church and you've probably never read the Bible, you're probably familiar with this image of Moses and what we call the burning bush. Even Stephen in Acts 7 calls it a burning bush. The one thing we know about it is that it wasn't burning. That's like the whole thing about it, right? It, it's on fire, but it's not burning. And that's what grabs Moses' attention. There's this bush... There are flames, but there's no smoke, presumably, right? It's not burning. And so it grabs his attention, and here's what, I, here's what strikes me about this. Fire is kind of unique in a way, because fire is both terrifying and inviting, right? It's both terrifying and inviting. It can do us great harm, and it can do us great good. I don't know if you can think back and remember if you were around during Black, the Black Saturday fires, not that long ago, right? 
I remember it vividly because I was in Diamond Creek that day, like a stone's throw from where the fires were raging. It was 45 degrees, and the, the smoke was just thick in the air, and we're hearing stuff coming through about what was going on. And in fact, if it hadn't been for a dramatic wind change in the afternoon, uh, the whole place probably would have gone up. So fire is terrifying. The power of it, its capacity to do damage. We lost friends of the family that day who were who were just consumed by it. It's terrifying, and it's also inviting. Have you ever sat around a fire? It's just, it's just always good. Whenever you sit around a fire, it doesn't matter the circumstances of your life, it's a good time. You just get mesmerized by it, you get warmed by it. When I was walking here this morning, I was walking when it was really early, it was freezing cold, and half of my journey here, I, I was just following smoke. Because as soon as I got out of the house, I could smell wood smoke, and then I just edited my journey to work to follow the smoke because it was delightful. Everything was cold. I had this wood smoke in my nostrils. I really just wanted to, 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 to forsake you guys and go and sit with those guys. Wherever they were, that's where I wanted to be, right? Doing this. Right? That's, it's delightful. Fire is both terrifying and inviting. And, and here's why I think that is important for us, because God is both of those things as well. God himself is both terrifying and inviting. God himself is both holy and merciful. If you have a picture of God that is either all terror, you just see him as this, this, this kind of Thor-like creature up in the heavens waiting to hit you with something, if it's all holiness, you don't know who God is. And if it's all mercy, it's all inviting, it's all standing and warming your hands, and God would never do anything that would offend you or, or, or convict you, then you've got the wrong God as well. The God of the Bible revealed to us how he reveals himself, not speculation, but revelation is this. He is terrifying and he is inviting. He is holy and he is merciful. So we're going to see the next couple of verses, God is holy. He's terrifying. Verse four to six. Keep following with me, all right? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God, right? He gets it right. He sees God and he's afraid. This is the common experience for everyone who encounters God throughout the Bible. Fear, awe, because they see God for who he truly is, and God is holy. He is, that means he's perfect. He's not like us. And in fact, the rest of the book of Exodus, especially the second half of the book, which we'll get to probably next year, is the big problem that they're trying to solve between God and his people is this. How does a holy God dwell with a sinful people? 
How can God dwell with his people? He wants to be with them. He wants to be among them. He wants to speak with them and guide them. But how can he do that without killing them all? How can a perfect God live with imperfect people without just wiping them out? That's the problem that they solve by uh, the construction of the tabernacle and the ark and so on, all that stuff that we're going to get to later on. This is Isaiah's vision of God, right? That famous vision that you might have, you might have read before in Isaiah chapter 6, here's what, here's what Isaiah sees, the prophet Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, just like Moses, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Now look at his response. I said, woe is me, for I am lost. Another way of saying that is, I'm dead. I'm dead meat. Why? For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is who God is. And it's easy for some people to say, oh, no, 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 you, you misunderstand. That was Old Testament angry God. Our New Testament God is like Jesus sitting in a field with a lamb, right? That's, that's, our, that's our God has changed now. He's, he's, he, he likes to put moose in his hair, and, and, and right? And, but what do we see? The very end of the Bible, Revelation, we see exactly this happening. People in the new heavens and the new earth of every tribe and nation and tongue, which is why I love this, Right? And what are they doing? They're not just chilling and like, you know, hanging out with Jesus in the lounge room. They're falling down on their face and saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's who God is. He's holy. He's terrifying. He is awesome in the, the true meaning of that word. Awe-inspiring, overwhelming awesome and he's also merciful he's also merciful verse 7 to 9 the Lord said I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey and the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. God is holy God is terrifying, God is awesome, and he is merciful and compassionate and kind. And he has seen the suffering of his people, and instead of doing what a holy God could do and just say, screw them, 
They're terrible people, right? And they are. They're like you and me, right? They're terrible. You could just say they get, get given what they deserve. In fact, if you notice, he says, their cries come up to me. At no point in Exodus have his people even addressed him. They're crying, but they're not, they haven't addressed God. They haven't prayed to God. They're just crying about their circumstances. There's something in that, I think. Even though they're not crying out to him, he responds to their cries, and his response is not one of disgust. It's one of mercy. It's one of a good father wanting to rescue his children. So yes, God is terrifying, but he's also comforting, inviting. Yes, God is holy, but he's also merciful, compassionate. And so he says to Moses, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to save these people. I'm going to rescue them from Egypt, the most dominant power in the world, unmatched. Even today, we don't understand how the Egyptians knew what they knew, how they had the technology that they had. It's baffling. No one knows how the pyramids were built. No one. No one knows how they had the uh, the, the astrological understanding, mathematical understanding, technological understanding, no one. It's baffling, right? Egypt is a power unmatched, and Pharaoh is the leader of that power. He is the most powerful man in the world, without peer. And God just said, I'm going to get these people out of there. I'm going to rescue them from the hand of Pharaoh and their oppressors. And you can just imagine Moses going, oh, Awesome. That, that is a good idea, God. I fully approve of you going and doing that. Like Whether you zap them or you use some other means, um, zapping is good, it's quick. Maybe a clicking of the fingers for dramatic effect, but that is great news. Get after it. And then he gets the bad news. Bad news is verse 10. God says to Moses, now Go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Huh? Just imagine Moses like, no, 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 no. I escaped from Pharaoh. He was trying to kill me. I, I, I got out of Dodge, and now I'm nice and comfy. I've got a wife. I've got sheep, right? I'm, that's all I need. Um, he's, probably, he's, 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 gone, he's probably got dreadlocks. Um, you know, he's, he's just, he is comfy where he is. And now God has said, you're going to do it. You're going to go to Pharaoh, and you're going to bring my people out. And so Moses' response is like, no, 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 hang on, hang on, hang on a second. Well, I haven't signed anything, verse 11 to 12. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God said, I will be with you. So God says, I'm going to rescue my people out from under Pharaoh's nose. I'm going to demonstrate that Pharaoh is not king of the universe. I'm king of the universe. I'm going to demonstrate that over and over and over again until he yields to my sovereignty Moses thinks, yep, awesome, Get, you go and do that. God says, no, 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 you're going to do it, or more, more precisely, I am going to do it through you. 
Moses says, who am I? I'm nobody. I'm a shepherd. I don't even talk good, right? He's going to say that next week in, in chapter four. I don't... And God says, I will be with you. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you know exactly what this is like. You know exactly how this feels, right? Here's how it plays out for us. We read John 3, verse 16. Jesus says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that all who believe in him will not perish but we'll have eternal life. And I read that and I say, praise the Lord for that because I look around the world and it is screwed and people I know are broken and the person I know best is the most broken person I know. And so to know that God loves us and isn't disgusted by us, that God will give his own son to save us and redeem us, praise the Lord for that. Amen, God, whether you want to do it through a zapping sort of thing or a clicking kind of thing, you, you, you do your thing. Praise the Lord. We'll, we'll be here. And then you get to the end of the Gospels, and Jesus says in Matthew 28 and verse 19, I think it is, he says, You go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the end of the age. So God's response, right? Moses says, who am I to go and speak to Pharaoh? And I say, and maybe you say, who am I to proclaim the good news of the gospel? And his response in both cases is the same. I will be with you. I will be with you. Now, I know we're an Anglican church, but we've got some islanders here this morning. I was hoping for some amens on that, right? He, he, that's huge. Who, who, who's with you? Who's with Moses when he goes and stands in front of the most powerful man in the universe and says, we're taking our people out of here? And who's with you as you stand before your colleagues or even harder, your family members who don't know Jesus and you open your mouth to tell them the good news? Who's with you? God is. God himself. Not even an angel or, or, or a really encouraging friend, right? God is with you. And there, I've got to tell you, I, there have been times in my ministry where I either would have quit or committed suicide, and that's not I'm, not, I'm not overstating anything. That's not a rhetorical device. I would have quit or killed myself if that was not true and I didn't believe it. That Jesus hasn't promised me, surely I am with you always. To the end of the age. He's about to tell us why that should be encouraging instead of no. He's about to tell us who it is who is going to be with us. What is he like? What is God like? If God says he's going to be with us, why should that be encouraging? Because God reveals himself in an incredible way. So check this out, verse 13 to 14. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? 
God says to Mo, said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. God reveals himself in the most astonishing way. He says, you want to know who I am? I am who I am. What does that mean? God is completely transcendent. He is completely unaffected by everything outside of himself. When it comes to who God is, nothing outside of God defines God. That makes him completely unique in the universe. So here's what I know. In our culture today, we are, we are culturally speaking, across the board, people who like to define things for ourselves. We like to determine what is true and what is, what is false. We like to determine what is good and what is bad. We like to determine what things are according to our own, our own preferences, right? And so you, I've heard dozens of times inside and outside of the church, right? This is everyone. I've heard dozens of times God would never dot, dot, dot. Or, even better, my God would never dot, dot, dot. And you know what you're doing? As soon as you utter those words, my God would never, you are making God in your own image. You are, you are putting restrictions and limitations on him that cannot touch him. You don't define God. And whereas with many other religions, it's about speculation and about us kind of constructing for ourselves a deity, probably in our own image, God stands above everyone else and says, you will not define me. Christianity is not speculation, it's revelation. We only know God because he tells us who he is. So here's what happened with me, my son, this past week. It's good to, to, to have illustrations about kids because we can say, oh, kids. The point is, this is us, right? So I'm just, I'm just getting in behind your defenses by talking about a three-year-old. This is you, all right? So this past week, twice in the same day, on Daddy Day, Wednesday, when I hang out with my boy, um, two things happened that illustrate this. Number one, he was playing with his cars because it was a day ending in Y, all right? So every time you've ever seen my son, he's got two cars, in each hand, one in each hand. And the king of cars is Lightning McQueen, all right? That's obvious. He has seen those movies, Cars 1, 2, and 3, more times than I should admit, all right, in front of you, okay? Um, and, and even to this day, when I asked him, which car is this, he said to me, this is my new Lightning the Queen. And, and so he refers to him as Lightning the Queen, right? And, 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 and normally I let it go, but today, this, this day on Wednesday I cracked. And I was like, listen, son, we need to have a talk. I've been putting this off. Sit down. Your, your, your hero, your favorite person in the universe, his name is not Lightning the Queen. Um, that's actually the name of a dancer on King Street somewhere else. No. So, lightning the queen. I apologize. Sorry. Lightning the queen, that's not who that is. His name is Lightning McQueen. Lightning McQueen. And he, he just looked at me and said, no. This car is Lightning the queen. 
I define who he is. He might be something else on the screen. He might be something else to every other person in the universe. But as long as he's my car, he's lightning to the queen. Right? That's what he was saying. I will define who he is. I will shape his identity. And then that night we were reading his storybook Bible. And I think we were in towards the beginning creation. Uh, there was a bear. And he said, look, a polar bear. And it was a grizzly bear. And I was like... But no, it's not, that's not a polar bear, that's a grizzly bear. You can tell because it's brown, it's got a fish hanging out of its mouth. That's what grizzly bears do. Polar bears, they're white and they have seals hanging out of their mouths. And he just, <laughs> he, he just looked at me and said, my book. <laughs> it's my book, it's a polar bear. All right, now we all laugh at him because he's three. How many times do we do it? It's my book my book and I've just I've, I've just taken the white out right I, t- I think it was Thomas Jefferson who did that right he just took it he took his Bible and just ripped out everything he didn't like and ended up with his God a deistic God who created the world and then took off somewhere and how many times do we do that it's my book it's my God he lives in my pocket and I define who he is and over against all of that nonsense God says, I am who I am. Or an even better translation is, I be who I be. He's, he's part Rasta. I, I, I be who I be. Nothing outside of me defines me. Now, when we, when we use that kind of language, we can't help but be defined by stuff outside of us, right? I am Jonathan. As soon as I say that, I'm defined, I'm limited. I'm a man, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm an Australian. All of these things limit me. We like to think that we're perfect free agents, but actually we're totally and utterly limited over and over again, and the older we get, the more limited we are by circumstances outside of us. That has never been true of God. He is completely transcendent. He is completely other. Everything that's not God is limited, but God says, I am who I am. And so when he says to Moses and when he says to us, I will be with you, that should mean something. There is someone who is with us who is unchanging, unthreatened, unlimited, Unbeatable. Another way of saying that is that God is sovereign. So if you ever heard that terminology, we say God is sovereign, that's what we mean. He is completely and utterly powerful, sovereign, unchanging, transcendent. That's why the Bible says he does what he pleases. And the beautiful thing is, he's not only perfectly powerful, but he's perfectly good. He's holy and he is merciful. And because God is sovereign, he can say to Moses, listen, this is what's going to happen. And he just outlines for him everything that's going to happen from this point until the job is done. He does it with perfect clarity and detail. He does it with 
perfect um, non-anxious declaration, right? This is not what I hope will happen. This is what will happen, right? So let me just read to the end, verse 18 to 22. This is what it says. He, he just says, The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go, and I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. Start to finish. At no point is that plan under any kind of threat, even though Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, is diametrically opposed to God and his purposes. At no point does God even raise an eyebrow. Just like, yeah, keep, keep it coming, keep it coming. I'm just unfolding my plan. Why? Because I'm sovereign. No one messes with me. And all of this is what led Paul to write some beautiful words that I recommend you get tattooed in at least one place on your body in large print, right? Romans chapter 8 says this. Back up just a couple of guys to Romans 8. Verse 31 and 32. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? Lots of people, actually. Lots of people can be against us. Moses could say, Pharaoh, actually, he's kind of a big deal. He's against me. The whole nation of Egypt, preeminent in the nations on the earth, they're going to be against us. You might say, actually, my dad is against me. He hates the fact that I'm a Christian. Or my co-workers at work hate it. Or my school friends think I'm an idiot. Or, or what about Satan? He's kind of powerful. He's a roaring lion. And Paul says, yeah, 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 I know. I know all that stuff. I've been in and out of prison so many times, you wouldn't believe me. I've got scars all over my body from beatings. It's crazy. And he still says, if God is for us, who can be against us? You can line up all of the enemies to God's plans and purposes that you like, and you might even start adding some governments in as we get further and further along in history. And against all of these things, Paul says, if God is for us, it's as if no one's against us. It's not a fair fight. God is, I am. So God, and this is what we need to know, God is abundantly able to 
and will fulfill his plans and purposes. That's what we've seen over and over and over again. And just to spoil it for you, that we're just going to keep seeing that, right? To the end of the book, this is the whole point of the book. God is the hero. Moses is a nobody. He's a murderer. He's a weakling. He's scared. He's a shepherd, right? He's nobody. God is the hero of the book of Exodus and the book of the Bible start to finish. And he will achieve his good plans and promises. Then... And today. This is not something that we learn about God and Moses. This is something we learn about God and his people from the beginning to the end. This is the God that we worship. If you're wondering, why don't we stand up and sing? It's because God is worthy of our worship. We can't help but sing songs. It's like, what do you do at the, what do you do at the football? You, you, you're so overwhelmed with, with, with honor for these men running around kicking a pig's gut, right, that, that you just, you're seeing and you shout and you, you, you hug, right? That's how we feel about God, only we've got more reason to feel that way. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the great I am. He always has been, he always will be, and he will fulfill his plans and promises on the earth. This is for us. This is for us. So he says, so God says, verse 15, right? This is what he says. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. 2017, still my name. And not just my name, but my nature. This is my name forever. The name you shall give me from generation to generation. So we're going to to dedicate some kids. This is generation to generation. This is who they need to know God is. He always has been, always will be sovereign and able to fulfill his plans and promises. And what I want you to know this morning is that when we worship Jesus, this is who we worship. So one of the most mind-blowing passages in the Bible, this is what I'm going to leave you with, okay? Just bear with me. We've got a couple of minutes, right? John chapter 8. This is a passage that if God hadn't held the world together, it just would have exploded and we never would have shown up, all right? It It would have just, I don't know, blown up, right? Just listen to what, what Jesus says. He's, he's having an argument again with the Pharisees, the, teacher of the teachers of the law, the people who would say, no, no, Moses is our guy. He's not your guy. We're in the line of Moses. We're in the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We're, he, we're, there, there, we're with them. And they keep fighting Jesus. And Jesus says to them, if you're so into Moses and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. That's a big enough statement, right? At this they exclaimed, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. And even then, the world could have blown up, right? You just said to the creator of all things, you're demon-possessed. And Jesus is like, I would not have withheld my fury if I was him. But he's him, and I'm me. All right, so they say, we know you're demon-possessed. Abraham died, you moron. And so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. 
Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? That's the question. Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And then we get cataclysmic stuff. They say, you are not yet 50 years old. And you have seen Abraham? Jesus responds, very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. And the world should have blown up. It would have been one thing, crazy thing, if he had said before Abraham was, I was. Right? Thousands of years ago, I was there then too. That would be one thing. But he doesn't say before Abraham was, I was. He says, before Abraham was born, I am. Now what happens next? They all pick up stones to kill him. For blasphemy, blasphemy, not, not tell them, telling their liars or whatever, for blasphemy, for saying, I am, for using God's holy, sacred name. You know, for thousands of years, Jews wouldn't even say the word, I am, in case they mispronounced it. They'd be blaspheming God. They just used the consonants and came up with what we translate as Yahweh, right? They wouldn't even utter, I am. And then Jesus just said, before Abraham was, I am. This is the God who we worship. He's the God who appeared to Moses in the bush that didn't burn. He's the God that said to Moses, Pharaoh is nothing to me. He's the God that said to Moses, I will deliver you out of the land of Egypt. I will redeem you because I am both sovereign and good. He's the God who sent his own son to die on the cross, and his own son was the great I am who was killed. He is both the sacrificer and the sacrifice. This is the point. We've said that God is holy and merciful. We've said that God is terrifying and inviting. We've said that God is just and compassionate. And here's the, here's the point. The place in all of history where God's justice and his mercy meet is in the cross of Jesus. When you see that cross, you need to see justice and mercy. It is a holy, righteous, and wrathful God pouring out all of his anger onto himself. Onto himself. The old saying goes that Justice and mercy kiss at the cross of Christ. This is the God we worship. If you're this morning and you don't yet know Jesus, you don't know him as the I am and the one who died for you. You don't know God as awesome and terrible and holy and the one who loves you and cares for you, cradles you. You don't know him as the creator and the redeemer. 
the one who sits outside of time and the one who hangs on the cross, if you don't know God as that God, then praise the Lord. That's why you're here this morning. You thought you were coming for a dedication. I'm going to pray for us now. After we pray, we're going to stand and sing again because God is worthy. God is worthy of our worship. But during that time, uh, I just encourage you, I encourage you to come forward. If you'd like to come and pray with someone, really for any reason, we'd love to pray with you. But if you'd like to come and just say, I feel like maybe there's something in this for me that I don't have yet, then we would love to chat with you and pray with you as well. So we're going to use that time, a couple of songs we're going to sing. During that time, uh, there'll be a couple of us over here who'd love to chat or pray with you. Um, But otherwise, let's stand up. We sing God's praises. He is the great I am.